I want to thank the Davies Recorder Trio for bringing us music this morning. When we have already started hearing jingle bells over loudspeakers, and soon we'll be hearing it sung by chipmunks and, and <laughs> sleigh bells, and it's a lovely kind of calm moment, so thank you. Well, I spent my Thanksgiving this year deep in the suburbs of Maryland at my in-law's house in Columbia, which is one of the great planned communities of the 1960s. My mother-in-law puts on a very traditional Thanksgiving dinner, turkey, gravy, mashed potatoes, stuffing, pumpkin pie. We do have kielbasa, of course, as well, which is a nod to my father-in-law's Polish roots. And of course, there is the ubiquitous jello mold, which actually I don't think my mother-in-law cares for herself. She tried to take it off the menu one year, but the kids, now in their 30s, protested. The second generation, as you may know, is always more nostalgic for those kinds of things than the people who actually had to eat things suspended in jello on a regular basis, who I think are done. <laughs> So we ate the jello mold on Thursday, or at any rate, some people did, and the kielbasa and the turkey. It was the same crew that I have been seeing for Thanksgivings for a few years now. My sisters-in-law, my nephews and niece, some very dear family friends who have spent Thanksgiving and Easter with my husband's family for the last 40 years, and Mrs. S. from next door. My mother-in-law uses Mrs. S's oven for the green bean casserole and helps Mrs. S over the icy patches if it's been a cold November. On days that aren't Thanksgiving, she sometimes gives Mrs. S a ride to the doctors or runs an errand for her. Mrs. S is from Jamaica, and most of her family lives there or in New York City, so she doesn't have any folks close by. So my mother-in-law, who I sometimes think embodies what was actually really great about the early 1960s, helps out. She is, as I think she would say, neighborly. I imagine many of us have had a Mrs. S at our Thanksgiving table, or perhaps we are a Mrs. S, the neighbor who, for whatever reason, doesn't have a big gathering to attend and joins in the party next door instead. Here at West, we help people set up those kinds of relationships when we match up members of the community with an extra place at their table with those who are looking for somewhere to celebrate the holiday. There's a real sense, at this time of year especially, I think, of wanting to be good neighbors to each other, whether we live right next door or not. But neighbors are not always without misgivings about each other. As I did a little research for quotes and readings for this platform, the one that came up most frequently on my internet search engine was that well-worn phrase, good fences make good neighbors. <laughs> I found a poem by Marge Piercy, too. Some of you know that she's a favorite of mine, called The Neighbor, which seemed full of promise until I read it. She must have been living in an apartment, and having spent most of my adult life in apartments, I have to say I can relate. Man stomping over my bed in boots, carrying a large bronze church bell which you occasionally drop. 
gross man with iron heels who drags coffins to and fro at four in the morning, who hammers on scaffolding all night long, who entertains sumo wrestlers and fat acrobats. I pass you on the steps, we smile and nod. Rage swells in me like gas. Now rage, too, keeps me awake. Neighbors can indeed (laughs) incite rage, or sleeplessness, fear, or just annoyance. And there is somehow nothing worse than that feeling, than the sense of displacement that it gives you, of being unwelcome in your own home because of the people around you. When I first came to Wes, we found ourselves in a situation a little bit like that poem, perhaps, with our own neighbors. In my work to bring a daycare center into our building, I began to meet the neighbors, people with whom we shared parking spaces and whose lawns edged up against our own people whose driveways we sometimes blocked and whose sleep was disturbed by weddings hosted here, people who may have resonated with Marge Piercy's poem and who really needed to talk about it. And that is the good part of this story, the story of Wes's neighbors. Instead of passing on the stairs and smiling through their rage, Our work to get daycare zoning meant we really did talk with our neighbors. We hosted conversations here, we saw them at advisory neighborhood commission meetings, and eventually, after a lot of listening, after tweaking our own parking rules and raising awareness about noise in our community, after talking about the things that could go wrong and the things that really did go wrong, we came to an agreement. We came actually to a formal neighborhood agreement signed by affected parties and filed with the zoning board down in downtown D.C. But much more important than that was the implicit agreement we made to keep talking. The way this congregation took the new parking guidelines to heart and moved more carefully around the neighborhood. The white parking lines that we got painted on the street to help guide cars into the right spaces. The cell phone numbers we exchanged, the snow plowing we did of our shared alley, the relationships we built. When the zoning was through and the daycare was finally ready to move in, I told someone that the whole process had been an ethical culture miracle. And I meant it. It was the kind of miracle created by people talking, people listening, people trying to bring out the best in each other. It was, of course, wonderful to be able to bring the new daycare into our building. But even better than that, for me, was gaining a sense of being at home in our space, at home in our neighborhood. Now, when I pull out of our parking lot in the back, I slow down the car to compliment our neighbor on his house's new coat of paint. Mark, our facilities manager, helps our next-door neighbor lift heavy things on occasion and checks out the parking signs on his neighborhood walks with his dog, Bradley. Last January, we opened our doors to our neighbors for a big-screen showing of the presidential inauguration and loved the packed house and the potluck meal. 
Many of you have helped as you've eagerly taken on the work of moving respectfully in a residential area. We've begun, just begun, to create a new kind of relationship with our community. One of the challenges, I think, of this kind of relationship, really of the relationship of any religious congregation to the neighborhood that surrounds it, is that the people who come here on Sunday morning aren't necessarily the people who live in the surrounding houses. Especially at a unique place like Wes, we have members from Maryland, from Virginia, from all parts of the district, walking, busing, and often driving to be here Sunday, not to mention Wednesday for chorus practice or Thursday for the board meetings or Monday for winter festival rehearsal. It can be hard, I think, to really grasp the idea that this community is our neighborhood, that we have a relationship with the people a hundred feet outside these walls just as we do with the people inside the walls. When we all have our own communities where we live or work or go to school, is this neighborhood really ours? Do these streets belong to us in any real way? Or are they just the landscape we see between our car and the committee meeting? Who are our neighbors, after all? This question for me is an important one and a religious one. And indeed, every religion that I know of has struggled with the question. It's a question not just about where we are, but who the we is. It's about who's inside and who's outside the group, who we have a responsibility for, who we take care of. You all know some of the traditional religious responses to this question. You know perhaps about the strong tradition of hospitality in Semitic cultures, the emphasis on welcoming the stranger in Jewish and Christian texts. Bedouin culture, rooted in a place where the environment is rarely hospitable, places great importance on the warm reception of guests, known or unknown. Islam's founding was radical in part because it opened the understanding of who was family, who was inside the group, from strictly kinship lines to a kind of understanding based on shared religion. In some Buddhist traditions, monks carry begging bowls and are sustained by the hospitality of the community where they live. I heard one of the best treatises of religious hospitality during my time at seminary. It was a class on ethics, and a student was presenting an ethical argument for welcoming immigrants, including those without documentation. Speaking from her tradition, she did an elegant biblical exegesis. It's a treatment of biblical passages using historical sources and critical thinking. A member of a historically black church, she talked about her community's difficulty and her own struggle with welcoming immigrant communities. She found in the Bible a mandate to welcome the widow, the orphan, the alien in a new land, and wove her commitment to those words with her sense of care for those in need. Finding in her religious tradition the rooting she needed for work on immigrant justice, she gave the whole class a lesson on what it means to welcome the other, what it means to be a neighbor. 
I was thinking about that idea of neighbors and otherness when I visited Canada recently. I was a child the last time I was in Canada, and the process of getting across the border seems to have changed a little bit. <laughs> I remember driving up in a car and chatting. I don't even think we brought our passports. This time, I spent an hour in customs each way, passports stamped officially, questions answered, bags checked by x-rays and test wands and dogs. I don't know that all that security is necessarily a bad thing, but it certainly adds to the sense of otherness, of leaving our own community and venturing across a real border when we visit our big cold neighbor to the north. Borders figure prominently in the American imagination right now, and they're likely to continue to do so as we consider legislative immigration reform in the coming year. It's interesting to me to note the differences between our current understanding of our boundaries with fixed borders and guards and walls and the earlier American understanding of borders. Our sweeping sense of manifest destiny, that the land before us was simply ours to claim and make our own, broke down borders that may indeed have existed as we moved ever westward. Now, our territory conquered and our neighborhoods created, we solidify our own borders, making clear where we end and other begins. And so I think we begin to need more and more people who are border crossers, who know what it is to make neighbors with us and neighbors with others, too. This is true on an international scale as we seek to create a political world that honors relationship as well as limitations. But it's also true here in our own city. One of the things that I love about the district are its distinct neighborhoods, the parts of the city that have their own feels, their own tempos, their own names. It feels like a little set of urban villages, each one built around schools or parks, skyscrapers or bodegas. But even as we celebrate that sense of individualized communities, we are in need of people who can cross community boundaries who can bring together the city as a whole. One of the reasons I've been so excited to be part of DC Clergy United for Marriage Equality is that it has members from every ward in the city, perhaps from every neighborhood. It's not always easy to come together across these boundaries of blocks, but the power of a people united is too great to resist. And so we become border crossers making neighbors of people who live perhaps miles from where we are. We at West have yet another border to cross, the one that sits just five blocks to the north, up 16th Street. Perched as we are on the edge of the city, so close to Maryland, where many of our members live, it can be a challenge to discover where our true neighborhood is. And indeed, the greater Washington area is awash in borders. The lines that make up that almost diamond of D.C. and separate Maryland and Virginia from the district. 
so many people living so close together and yet dividing themselves from each other by the boundaries drawn years before. I was talking about this dilemma with a D.C. rabbi the other day, someone who serves a congregation with members from Fairfax County, Montgomery County, Arlington, Prince George's, all parts of D.C. I shared with her the phrase that helps me to understand our shared mission here, that the district needs people in the suburbs with a heart for the city, that even while we keep a foot in the communities where we live, We also have a responsibility to this community, to the neighborhoods where we gather, where we work. D.C., like any city, faces challenges in its school system, in affordable housing, in opportunities for youth. And D.C. has the special challenge of being without its own vote, of being subject to the whims of Congress. D.C. needs advocates, needs solidarity, needs the shared people, power of people who are willing to cross borders to stand with the city, to support the city in its work for justice. We need border crossers here. I first heard that phrase, border crosser, at an anti-racism conference I attended a few years ago. The speaker was talking about the need for all of us to be border crossers, to learn to travel in neighborhoods and communities that are not entirely our own. I have found again and again the truth of that statement as I do interfaith work and cross-cultural work, as I try to create the world I want for our children. Part of being a good border crosser is respecting the differences on the other side of the border, knowing that you are a guest there. I often felt like a border crosser during my time at seminary, listening to my colleagues grounding in the Bible to their Christian journeys, learning to lead public prayer and understand the history of baptism. I found my own way through those years, sometimes lifting my voice to offer an alternative viewpoint, sometimes recognizing that this was a conversation in which I was a guest and a welcome one, but not part of the family. I'm grateful now for my own grounding in the Bible that I learned there, partly because it helps me catch the references when I'm at interfaith gatherings, helps me to understand their ethical guidelines and to connect them with my own. I am learning to be a border crosser with rabbis and ministers, priests and imams, to make neighbors of the people across the street or across town, And sometimes, those neighbors are right in our own backyard. You remember that woman I told you about at my seminary who did the beautiful exegesis about welcoming the stranger and immigrant justice. She's a member, I discovered early last year, at the Refuge Baptist Assembly, the congregation that shares our space here, worships right in this hall on Tuesday evenings. We share our space with Refuge Baptist and with Fabrangan, a Jewish congregation that meets here on Saturday mornings. Sometimes we don't even have to leave our home to find borders to cross and neighbors to meet. So where does this leave us all on a beautiful Sunday after Thanksgiving? For me, it's an invitation to open my heart 
to wave across the fence, to build a gate and walk through it, to find neighbors in the people around me and build a neighborhood from those who share a common vision, to cross the borders I see before me and look around, realizing that the border, the boundary, has disappeared into the sidewalk, just another line in the road.